This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, what's up, everybody? It's brother from another. Usually, the brother in that spot is the one and only Michael Smith. My brother is taking the rest of the week off. As I said to you yesterday, this is a family show, so uh, keep our brother... Uh, and his family in your prayers, hopeful to have Michael back next week. But take his time. Whenever, whenever he can come back will be good for us. Now, usually, Ahmed, yes. when Michael is here, I, if I say today is Wednesday, Michael will disagree. I know he'll take issue with me <laughs> saying that because he thinks I'm that guy. Yeah. He thinks I just, I just exist to disagree with him. Now, yesterday, I'm doing the show without Michael Smith, Ahmed. And it was a solo thing. So I get to put all my stuff out there with no pushback. Mm-hmm. Leave it to Peacock to bring in a Wolverine to troll me <laughs> with somebody yeah. who grew up in the state of Michigan and roots for the disgusting maize and blue. What is wrong with people? What is wrong with you being a Michigan fan? What are you doing? Why grew, do you root for Michigan? So I grew up in Michigan. I grew up on the west side of the state, Grand Rapids. And Grand Rapids was a, kind of a unique part of Michigan to grow up in because they weren't all University of Michigan fans. It was split pretty much down the middle. You were either Michigan State or the University of Michigan. Uh, I just happened to root for the University of Michigan. They were better in, in football at the time there, and so that probably helped. Now, since then... Haven't quite been as good, and so you say disgusting. There are many Wolverine fans who would yeah. agree with you with the product on the field uh, lately. But you're right. We just need they need to needle you, Michael, to push back every. No matter who's in this other right. part of the screen, has to be versus you. <laughs> That's what makes it better. It's just a, it's a quality hang. It really is. Um, we're going to have a good time. We just give our take on whatever is happening in the world. It's not too serious. Sometimes it is serious. Sometimes it's silly. Uh, and all the stuff in between. So hold on for the ride. And I will say to you, speaking of rivalries, Ohio State-Michigan, that's one of the oldest rivalries in college football, one of the oldest rivalries in baseball, Yankees-Red Sox. And Ahmed, I I don't know if people know, that maybe people recognize you uh, from the Chris Sims Unbuttoned podcast, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris Sims, Chris Sims is a lot of things. I love him. Uh, he's our brother, but he's a Yankees fan. And I had the most fun last night. I just had such a good time last night just texting with him from the first inning until I just decided to let up. Yeah. I decided to let up because yeah. it was it was becoming bullying. You felt bad. It you was, started it was, to actually it, feel bad about talking about I the felt Yankees. Bad for him. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think tell me if you disagree. I know this is wild uh, for people around the country to hear me say something like this, that the Red Sox are now underdogs. The Red Sox are underdogs. Red Sox-Yankees for a while in the early 2000s, it was the arms race. It was unfair in baseball. The Yankees would spend millions and millions and millions and millions, you know, well over 200 million. The Red Sox would be right there at 190 million, 180 million. I mean, they just, the, the payrolls were bloated. The Yankees had stars, Jeter and A-Rod and Mariano. 
uh, the Red Sox had stars, Big Poppy and Manny and Pedro, and it was just excessive. And so I, I'm, I'm sure if you were outside of the Northeast Corridor, you really got tired of seeing these teams go back and forth. They were always on Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, both fan bases, can I say respectfully, a little obnoxious. I know, a little obnoxious. <laughs> A little self-indulgent, yeah, that's sure. That's self-aware. That's very self-aware but, there, Michael. Well done. That is self-aware. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this. Uh, the Red Sox are not the best team in baseball, not the second best team, not the third best team. They will be fortunate if they're able to advance past the Tampa Bay Rays, who I think are the second best team in baseball after the Dodgers. So is it, is it fair to say that the Red Sox, this cute little embraceable high payroll team, they are is now they, an underdog in no, baseball. You're not no, buying it. No, I, no, I'm not personally buying that. You can sell it. I'm not. I'm not buying it. It's funny. I, I work with some people here at uh, at NBC Sports. We're based out of out of Connecticut, so there are some people that come from the New York area, some people that grew up in the in the Boston area, and there are some people that grew up in the Boston area who are in their what late 20s or early 30s who have never known the kind of, you know, Boston fandom that, that I grew up with and that you grew up with. It was like I went to college at Syracuse with people who are Boston fans who never tasted any success in any of the major sports. And so <laughs> at that point, Michael, I would say, yes, Boston, no matter what, if, if you're a fan of the Bruins, you know, Patriots really, uh, Celtics, the Celtics had their success, of course, but, but the Red Sox, no. I was like, yes, underdog. They lost it. They ruined it. Tom Brady went in there. The Boston Red Sox, with their success in high payroll, they blew it. So they will never be underdogs again. But I, I think, you know, I can still look at this team and say it's a fun team to root for. Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, you know, they're not household names maybe yet, but they deserve to be. They're right. really good players. And it wasn't like the Yankees lost this game last night. Of course, all the headlines are Garrett Cole, $324 million. He blew it. Um, you know, they sent him from third there. Should they not have done that? The third base coach. But, but the Boston Red sent Sox, they're a first. good team. Sent him from first. Sent You're right. From first, You're though. right. What'd you think of that? And, What'd you think of both and, of those? And, you know, there was, there was what, a third base coach on the Red Sox side, too, that it, it worked out. He's Xander Bogart scored, but a little dicey. Okay, what, have I th- what did I think of it? Let me see if I yeah. can find um, some eloquent words. That was really stupid. Okay? <laughs> that was really stupid. In that situation, look, the starter, the Boston starter, Nathan Ovaldi, had thrown 71 pitches, five and a third. They got him out of the game. Okay, so now they get the starter out of the game who had been doing very well, gave up a home run, sure, but got him out. Starter's out. The ball is scalded, a a scalded single right after that. So that tells you, I, I guess, Ryan Brazier, who, my point exactly, a reliever that you're not really afraid of. That's, that's who was on the mound for the Red Sox. The momentum was shifting in that game. It was still only three to one. You could have uh, guys on base, only one out. You're in pretty good shape. Why in the world would you send who? Ricky Henderson? No, no. Aaron Judge. Yeah. He's <laughs> fast. Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge is fast. He's deceptively, he's very quick. Yeah, deceptively. You know what that means? He probably is not a stop and start guy. He probably yeah. just doesn't go. Boom, out of the blocks. Yeah. If, this, if we were talking about uh, the 100 meters, you know, he's a guy out of the blocks. He's probably in last place. And then those uh, long strides, he, he picks it up in the final, you know, 20 meters, I guess. But the third base coach gave him a late signal. Yeah. 
he's like rounding second, no signal. Then all of a sudden, this frantic, come, come, come. And he was out at the plate by a mile. And I think that changed the game. The Red Sox tacked on another run there to make it four to one right shortly after that. Then a two-run uh, two double from Alex Verdugo uh, made a six to one. Yankees hit a meaningless home run in the ninth inning, six to two. Yankees go home, Red Sox advance uh, to the uh, ALDS. And I want to ask you, do you think this is, uh, do you think this is rare in, in the sense that, you know, Red Sox, Yankees, you, you don't find a lot of this in the, in this corporate environment in, in professional sports. You don't find a lot of just raw, nasty rivalries. Right. Do you think this is a, uh, this, is this the last of that? You know, like there are only a couple of maybe Giants, Dodgers is still like that. Um, Cubs, Cardinals, I don't yeah. think was ever that. I may be speaking out of turn. It's Midwestern. It's nice. You're right. Right. It's respectful. Yeah, the, you, don't have that, you don't have that hatred. You don't want to see the other side die or anything bad happen to it. No. Raiders, I, I, Chiefs. Yeah. 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 Raiders, Chiefs, you know, anyone versus Tom Brady, it seems like. Raiders have, a, have that thing with yeah. uh, the tuck but rule. It's hard. Um, no, it, it is. And I think the. And, and the thing is that, like, that's what makes sports fun, right, is there's this on the field. Like, in real life, we're not supposed to hate. At least we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to hate the other person. We're, not, we're supposed to get along. Um, but in who. sports, I know. I know. You're right. But in sports, <laughs> that's supposed to be okay, right? right? And, and it really has been more difficult as you've gone on. A lot of great things have come from player movement, obviously, right? Free agency. It's been more fair to the players. They've been getting paid. They're not stuck in one franchise for their whole careers. But at the same time, you do lose something. And I think you lose kind of that, that rivalry. We've seen players go between the Red Sox and, and, uh, and the Yankees um, here in recent years, the Giants and the Dodgers. So uh, I, I hope we hold on to it. I hope we, it's always a thing when the Yankees play the Red Sox. And I know sometimes we overhype it because we love it so much, but I, I hope that's always a thing, and I, I hope it doesn't go away, Michael. All right. Uh, tell me now. You can uh, feel free to disagree. This, it's, it's, okay. all, it's all family, and we're just talking, right? Yeah. I, I think um, I love baseball, and I've, I've heard I've heard that you know baseball is losing some viewers, and it just doesn't engage uh, the modern sports fan because it's too long, and there's no clock, and the games go on and on, and there's some antiquated traditions in baseball, you know, unwritten rules, so on and so forth. Yeah. I actually I still love the game, and I think right now I think baseball playoffs are still fantastic. I'm just gonna say though, last night. I'm not in the habit of, you know, criticizing other networks. You know, I'm certainly not in the habit of uh, criticizing play-by-play -play guys. I never wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. I don't, mm -hmm. That's not my skill set. Don't want to do it. But don't you think it might help draw more people to baseball if we stop jumping into the Wayback Machine? Like, last night, I, I love the Red Sox and love watching Red Sox-Yankees games. But, you know, uh, back to 1949, hey, last time, you know, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio... They had an interview last night with Bucky Dent. That was from 1978, mm -hmm. like 43 years ago. We're still talking about this stuff. Is this a way to draw? Look at this. Look at okay. Even on Brother from Another, they're showing stuff from the 1970s. Look at that. 19, it's everywhere. 1978. And, and you know, look, we, we keep it 100 on this show, so I'm just yeah. going to tell you the reason, the reason 1978 really triggers me in a lot of ways. And it wasn't because of a one-game playoff. I wasn't living here. I wasn't living in Boston at the time. It wasn't because of this Yankees-Red Sox one-game playoff. 1978 in Boston, it really defines those who were here and those who know. 
and those who don't know. Like, this is a real thing. I don't know if it's like this in other cities that you've lived in, Ahmed, but yeah. just for example, there's a, there's a mayor's race going on in Boston. And one of the controversies is one candidate did not grow up here. She grew up in Chicago, went to Harvard, very capable, very bright woman, but she didn't grow up here. And the other can- candidate, she grew up here. No, she's from here. Yeah. She walked these streets, you know, she's been in the neighborhood, you know, so it's like, eh, yeah, 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 you're nice and everything. You know, I know you went to Harvard and everything, but you're not really from here. So it's like that. I'm from here, not from here kind of thing. Yeah. So 1978 kind of brings out that that thread, brings out that gene in people like, OK, because I'll, I'll tell you one time, like it's sort of like five or six years ago. I've always lived in cold weather cities. So five or six years ago in Boston, there was a snowstorm up to, I mean, it was probably like 20 inches, no exaggeration, 20, 20, 21 inches. So I'm outside, and I'm trying to be neighborly, Ahmed. I'm just trying to be a good dude. I'm outside, I'm shoveling, and I see my neighbor, who was frankly not that friendly, right? Well, I'm trying to be the better guy. I'm trying to make some small talk with him. I said, man, can you believe the snow? I mean, it's up to my waist, 21 inches. He goes, you obviously weren't here in 1978. Blizzard was 78. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You okay, bro. You don't All right. know. All right, we're good. Know. We don't need that. You I don't want to hear about 78 anymore with snowstorms, with one-game playoffs. I don't want to hear about Bucky Dent. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Yeah, you know it's what's, bad for yeah. baseball. What do you think? You know what's funny about that is there's like, kind of like a connection between what you're talking about there. It's like you're not, you don't know. You're not from here. Like that's a kind of a baseball yeah. fan's mentality with some of these, you know, rule changes. We're try, you know, for all the, the the faults that you think Major League Baseball has, and Rob Manfred has pulled the wrong strings. You, what you cannot say is that him, along with Theo Epstein, who is now with Major League Baseball, they're thinking of ways to make the game. more enjoyable, more entertaining. We've seen it in the NFL. They make tweaks all the time with how they call defensive penalties to make the game as aesthetically pleasing as possible because that's what we want. There's a discussion in the NBA right now. It's like, are there too many three-point shots? Is the game getting boring? Do we need to make rule changes there to bring the game back in equilibrium? So you do see that a little bit from Major League Baseball side, speaking to, you know, is it getting old? Is it getting antiquated? Let's try to talk about and think about some new rules here. But you do have that pushback from like the guy who wanted to tell you about the snowstorm back in the day of like you're not a true baseball fan if you if you want to run around second base in extra innings which i don't know if you like or don't like i personally thought it was kind of interesting and added some drama to the late innings Um, but if you like that then you're not a true baseball fan so there's a little push and pull going on with baseball right now i think you're right there's a segment of fans that just want to go to the future advance the game this is a game of now and we don't need to be tied to the past anymore but a significant number of baseball fans, though, Michael, want to be tied to the past. This is what they love about baseball, is that they feel like it's unchanged. It's, it's the same game that it was in 1980 or 1990, which is not. It's a little different. They not. play it differently now. Right. Um, but I think that's the, that's the push-pull here. I'm of the side, Michael, like I'm with you. Like, let's advance the game. And there's a topic, too, that, that kind of caught my eye. Um, Cespedes Family Barbecue. Do you do you follow them on Twitter? Have you heard of them? Do you know them? They've been around for a long time. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, good. Oh, teach me something. Here they're we go. A couple, a couple of uh, young guys, although they're they're older older now, and I think they're working over at Fox. But they tweeted out something about about a NIT baseball tournament, and we've heard sport, uh, sports talk about 
in-season tournaments and trying to, like the NBA, Adam Silver has talked about a, uh, like a meaningful in-season tournament to run in parallel to the NBA regular season. We've got to ask some of our guests on that because I'm kind of curious if that is ever going to come to fruition. But what they just kind of mockingly put on their Twitter feed was what the NIT tournament would look like for Major League Baseball. So if you were to take the teams that just missed out on making okay. the playoffs, this would be the oh. NIT. So they're the team, you know, the A's just missed oh. out, the Angels, the Rockets. Okay. You, know, you got a bunch of teams no. here that just missed out. No. And they get their, no. they get their, you know, I hear I hear a lot of no's here. But imagine this. No. Imagine no. if you do that. No. Say this is I'm not listening. a series. No, hold on. Say this is not a series. Just <laughs> one game. I'm trying to convince you. I'm working really hard here. And the winner gets the I'm number listening. one pick. The winner gets the yes. number one pick. Okay, now you can go. The, the number one pick? Yeah. <laughs> Number one pick, what, in the draft? Yeah, in the draft. Why? Why not? Wait a minute. Wait We're a talking minute. about advancing so, the game out of the box. Oh, think out bro, of the box. Bruh, bruh. Come on. That's Come on. two out of the box. All right, first of all, <laughs> this is, it's no, it's not even two out of the box. I'm going to tell you what this is. I'm going to tell you what this idea is. Yeah. You know what this will lead to? Yeah. Now, we're trying to get baseball, at, well, some people are, because I, I guess I just like the, I just get lost in my thoughts watching baseball. So I like yeah. the up, the upbeat sports and, and, and action like basketball. You just know that game has got a clock. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Halftime, fourth quarter. It's going to go fast. I'll be home at this time unless it goes to overtime or double overtime. Unlikely. Yeah. So I like that. I like the pace of basketball. I like the pace of football. No, it's going to be three hours. Okay. Yeah. There it is. Three hours. TV. Baseball. That unwieldy, unpredictable, I like it. Most people don't, I know, in this age. They don't like it. But we're trying to get it. You're trying to speed up the game? You already had 162. I'm supposed to reward you? You were 80 and 82? You were 88 and 74? You didn't make the playoffs? You had 162 game sample size. You weren't good enough. I already got the answers. I don't need to know. Like the NIT, old school, all right. It's 30 games. It's yeah. maybe 35 in college basketball. So maybe you got some bad breaks. You didn't get any bad breaks over 162 games. I already know. I don't want to see you in the playoffs. I saw you for 162, and I'm glad your season's over. Players want the season over. Everybody's done. You know, th- this, wasn't, me, this, wasn't even my, this wasn't even my idea. This was Cess- oh, Cespedes' oh, so family you're try- barbecue, <laughs> see, so it's like now, I don't even know what they Now you're trying were. to distance. They, <laughs> oh, see. <laughs> the no, funny no, no. thing is they just threw you it out there. They, they weren't even being serious about it. They just threw it out there as like a fun, like here's who would be in the NIT uh, tournament. But I think but uh, this is how baseball needs to think. And, you know, Theo Epstein works in Major League Baseball right now. There's a report out there today that the Mets were interested in him running their franchise um, trying to bring back yeah. another franchise that has historically been not very good here, at least the past few decades. Um, did it with Boston, did it with the Cubs, trying to do it uh, with the Mets. But he said he said no. So he's working in Major League Baseball, trying to think of some of these on-field uh, rules, situations. Do we ban the shift? Do we not do that? But uh, apparently if he's going to get back involved with Major League Baseball, Michael, he wants kind of more of an ownership stake. I think he'll take over as an ownership yeah. group with the team. Um, and I also Listen. think he enjoys what he's doing right now with Major League Baseball and having kind of a hand on, on shaping the future the future of the game. Ahmed, uh, I don't know what the Mets have to do. Uh, maybe work some back channels. Maybe, because uh, we know uh, they're not above doing some shady stuff. We know the Mets. They, they, they got a lot of issues 
uh, on the field and off the field uh, the last you know, several years. But if they need to promise him ownership, a stake in ownership, they should do it. Theo Epstein could save the New York Mets. I, I've seen him do it several times. Okay, the guy's not even 50 years old. Think about what he's done. You know, won multiple championships with the Red Sox after, you may have heard about it, 86-year drought. 86-year drought, comes back, turns around the Red Sox immediately and does it with two trains running, develops a farm system, brings in free agents, they take down the Yankees, and then he wins again in 2007 and then sets them up for their championship team in 2013, like drafting Mookie Betts, all that stuff. Then goes to the Cubs, same drought, once again, Re, like refurbishes, renovates their whole minor league system, brings in free agents, they win a championship, Billy Goat, curse, all that thing is over. Theo Epstein, one of the smartest guys I've ever interviewed, not just in baseball, one of the smartest people I've ever interviewed, uh, really has a, a way to, of connecting with people, knows personnel, knows talent. If you're the Mets, if you're really serious about winning, don't take that no. Yeah, like, okay, hmm. is, that a, is that a negotiating no? Is that one of those say, uh, Ahmed, this is for free. Like, yeah. I don't know if you got an agent or not. Yeah. That's like, sometimes you say no, it's like a wink. You, you don't go, really oh, mean it. no. You're just trying to say, you're trying to say, <laughs> hey, you put a little more zeros on that contract. Yeah. And maybe <laughs> and it no turns to a, a maybe. Yes. It turns to a maybe real fast. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The Mets yeah. must do this. Come on, one of our guys. One of our guys here at Peacock and NBC Sports, Matt Casey. Matt Casey, get the Mets to do it. I don't know if you got sources yeah. in that organization. You must get Theo Epstein I don't if think you want to so. win. Matt bought tickets to a game no? this past weekend, so I don't think he has that tight right. of sources, unfortunately. Hey, Ahmed, you already look. This is easy, right? This is easy. We're just talking. We're done? The show's over? Already. That's it? Oh, kind of. Oh. Well, kind of. I mean, you're on your way. <laughs> you're on your way. Right, yeah. You did. There are no slip-ups. You didn't. Uh, you didn't do anything to get me or yourself fired yet. So look, man, we're rolling. You feel good? We got it. I, I feel good. I've got more to. I've got more to talk about here. But we also okay, got I can't commercials, wait don't we? Something like that. We'll come back. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. I had uh, at least three or four conversations with uh, Shad. You know, message is loud and clear, and I agree with owning a stupid mistake that I made, uh, and that uh, a job of a coach is to number one, health and safety of a player. Number two is motivate him and bring out the greatness in him, and number three is uh, give him everything possible to be successful and get him a great locker room, and then get the heck out of the way. I apologize for distraction with a huge week coming up. I thought at the time, you know, now that I maybe thought it through, but I thought at the time this is a chance for everybody to clear their head, including myself. Of our leadership committee, I had at least, you know, eight to ten phone calls even where they called me and they were over the top supportive and said, well, we got you, man, we, we're, we move forward. You know, a common thing was, Coach, we all did stupid things. And uh, I'm really impressed with our guys.
at uh, at any point over this whole last few days, uh, did you ever feel distraught enough to consider resigning at all? No. Last thing I'd just like to say also to uh, the 904 and Duval and our owner, you know, I, why did I decide to come out of what I was doing and do this? Uh, our owner, I just became, you know, uh, admire the guy so much. He's become a friend. He's a guy that I, uh, like I said, I just admire. Uh, Jacksonville, I know very well. I know our fans have been hanging in there with us, and I apologize to them. And I uh, want to make that perfectly clear. All right, Ahmed. Uh, <laughs> this is Dan Wetzel, who writes a great column, one of the best columnists in the country, in my opinion, uh, saying that it's a self-made mess. We know that. Certainly, uh, deciding to go from Cincinnati to Columbus, which is not that far, uh, after a loss, which he described, his words, called he called the loss devastating and heartbreaking. They lose by three points to the Bengals. Instead of going back with his team uh, to Jacksonville, and Tony Dungy told us yesterday that in all of his years as a player or a coach, he just can't remember a coach not going back with his team. So instead of going back to Jacksonville with his team, Ahmed, he goes up the road to Columbus to his own spot, his own restaurant, yeah. goes to the restaurant, and pretty much gets a prelude to a lap dance, uh, <laughs> you know, a couple times. That's what we saw. That, think about that. That's what we saw, what was captured on video. I don't know what else happened, but we yeah. know that at least happened. And now he's saying, you know, it was a stupid mistake, and he apologizes. Can I just say, first of all, the reason he didn't resign is because he's not an idiot. He said it was a stupid mistake. He didn't say it was a stupid person. If he resigns, you know what that means? Yeah, you wouldn't give back he that forfeits money? forfeits the money. You wouldn't give back that money? He forfeits the money. Not going to do that. Yeah. And if Shad Khan fires him, then he gets the money. So I, I guess the question is, did you think you would be fired? And, and maybe that's a different conversation, but I, there's no way, no way, no how Urban Meyer uh, is going to resign. Yeah. Now, Shad Khan may ultimately who's a very rich man, Khan might ultimately say, okay, yeah, we, let's negotiate some buyout. We got to figure out some agreement because he can't stay here. Right. I will say that I, I don't buy, and I, I want to get your take on this. I mean, I've said a lot of things about Urban Meyer, and I just want to hear what you have to say, but I, I don't buy that the team needed to clear its head. The team needs to clear its head after... A close loss to the Bengals. Let's yeah. put that schedule up. Gary, then just put that schedule up one more time. Yeah, so what does that mean, Michael? Does that mean, like, the, so he went right. to his place in Columbus. Does that mean that all the players had license to go wherever they wanted to after that that game? Is that no. what he's saying? Absolutely. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they needed a break from each other, but they weren't all going to different places. But if you put the schedule up on the screen, I think the message uh, speaks for itself. And bring that back that you had that up earlier. Um, First four weeks, week four, here we go. Week four, they lose to Cincinnati. Yeah. Look what happens in week seven. You've got a perfect, you've got, you've got a break. You've got a vacation right in the middle of the season, practically in the middle of the season, week seven. You've got a home game against Miami. So in-state home game, okay, a home game against an in-state opponent, week six, then week seven, you can go away. Mm-hmm. So yeah. why? Why then? Uh, yeah. This was not about clearing his head. This was all about him. And that's why 
Ahmed, as I ta uh, toss it over to you. That's why I, I think Urban Meyer is not really built for the NFL life because he still thinks like a college coach. And a college coach, it's all about him. He's bigger than the provost. He's bigger than the president. He's bigger than the AD. He's bigger than his players. He is the program. And it's all about him. And, and the pros, it's the exact opposite. In earning that respect, it was funny. There was one time in that soundbite that we just ran where he goes, you know, they asked me why I, why I came back. And then I thought he was going to go, I don't know. I really don't know why I did this. Because um, why would you sign up for this, right? <laughs> but you're right. You make a good right. point because in, in college, it, it is all about earning the respect of your players. And I think what he said is spot on about what are the jobs of a coach to do. It's, you know, protect your players. It's their safety, getting the most out of them, um, and creating that environment um, that's conducive to winning. And I think gaining that authority is just so much easier in college, obviously, right? You recruited these people, you got them into your program, you ingratiated yourselves to them right away on the recruiting trail, and then once they're in your program, they're kind of there, and they're stuck, and they're under your watch, and if they're going to play or not, it's totally up to you. And so gaining that authority in college seems easier than it does in the pros, where these guys are, are professional. They're grown men. Some of them have been in the league for many years um, and have been playing football for a long time. And so the, the thing that you talked with Tony yesterday is how do you gain back that trust? I thought it was really right. interesting when Tony answered. He's like, I don't know if you can. I really don't know if you can because the, how, how do you get the players? What, what, you have to almost go full like mea culpa, which he's trying to do here. But at that point, do you lose your authority? In the locker room. Like, have you gone to the point of no return here? And I think if you're Sean Khan, you say, you know, why haven't you made a move here? Why haven't you fired him? He's probably making the calculation, all right, and then what? All right, then where are we? You know, if we fire him now, I don't know that we're in a better spot. If we somehow rally and win this game against Tennessee, we're a game behind then, the AFC South not looking real great. Who knows? We're probably not in any better shape if we get rid of Urban Meyer. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I don't know how, Michael, he ever gets the trust of that of that team back unless they go on this amazing run where they start winning and that seems totally unlikely. Yeah, I, I don't see. I, I'm glad you brought that up with the winning. Uh, just not to exaggerate because I, I really do think Trevor Lawrence. I, I love what he did in the Cincinnati game. I know they lost it, and it's not like he threw for 400 yards, but I think he's such a talent. His talent to me just jumps off the screen. And it's clear why scouts loved him, why he was the unanimous you know, player of the year in college football, why he was the, uh, no, there was no doubt, sorry, Chris Sims, there was no doubt that he was going to be the number one pick in the draft. I know Sims like Wilson over Lawrence, yeah. not me. He still thought I, I Trevor would Trevor be the Lawrence number one pick, pick, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, and you know, it's just too bad that, that he has to come into the league with this, this is his first coach. It's all wrong. It's not really the, the pro atmosphere that, that some of these young, talented players deserve. But looking at that schedule, I don't see them. I don't see them winning more than four. I, I, at one point, I thought they might win six. I'd be shocked they win four games. And I, I'm still on record. I don't see him getting through this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see it working. Because with Urban Meyer, there's always something. Like from the start in Jacksonville, there's always something. He had the, the trainer. He brought in the trainer uh, from Iowa, and he thought that would be cool. And then and even before the season started, he had to get that out. I still think it's nutty, flat-out nutty, that he had Gardner Minshew and Trevor Lawrence splitting time. I understand you're trying to create a culture of toughness and accountability, and we don't give away jobs here. 
Urban, stop it. The guy's the number one pick in the draft, and it's Gardner Minshew. The reason you have the number one pick in the draft. There's a reason you've lost 19 games in a row. He's not going to be your starter. If he wins the job, that's on you. That's an indictment of you and no one else. So just I, oh, just little stuff. Just little stuff's going to happen. So he'll stop here. Yeah. This will go over, but something else is going to happen, and I got him out by week 10 or week 11. Uh, you don't think, he, you don't think he makes it through the year? You don't think he... No way. Nope. You think he steps nope. away? You think ultimately it's too much for him, too embarrassing for him, and he has to... No. He has to say no. No, he doesn't he has step to get away because that, that money. Like, that honestly, money. for me, like, there, it, yeah, it comes to a certain point for me. If I'm Urban Meyer, I'm so humiliated by this whole thing. Like, I'm like, I, I don't care. I, I've got enough money. I'll go back doing TV stuff and let they'll me ask let you me this. back. Yeah. Now, so we, we're getting to know each other, you know, working yeah. on our relationship. Yeah. Have I ever done anything uh, embarrassing um, you you're going to ask me or no? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, see, see that's, just, that's just too unfair because I'm putting you in a position to fail yes. because if you lie and say no, we've all yeah. done embarrassing things. Correct. So now you lose credibility off the top. You're if you right. say no, so of don't course do that. you have. Don't do that. But so I don't, don't want, do I don't want, I don't want, I don't want you to out yourself like that. I'm going to ask you, I don't know this. Are you married? I am married, yep. Okay, so tell me this. How, how would this fly um, with your wife? Yes. Urban Meyer, he's been married for 37 years, so he's got, he's got more ma- uh, marital experience, experience than I would guess both of us combined. I've been married 14 years. How long have you been married? 10, coming up on 10. Okay, more than both of us combined. Yep. 37 years. He said, Ahmed, that it was a speed bump. <laughs> right, right. A speed bump? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, come on. Come yeah. on. Look, I don't think if, I would characterize Yeah, my wife would not characterize it as such. If, the same if my wife happens. sees me, you know, doing, doing that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the whole nation, the whole the international, international yep. football community knows about it, that's a speed bump in your 37-year marriage? Yeah. Like, maybe, maybe that's a level of marriage that I can aspire to get to? I don't know. Yeah. Are those marriage goals? I don't uh, know. Who knows? You know, once we, once we get there, maybe we'll have a totally different idea on marriage. You know, for me, like, that's the thing that doesn't set right with me and the, the thing that, that hurts most about this story kind of is, is because it was ultimately embarrassing to a whole lot of people that had nothing to do with that moment. You know, his wife, his family, uh, the people around him. Um, and that, that, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't like that part of it, you know, because it's, it's, it's a public story and we're all going to talk about it. We're all going to have our laughs. We're all going to make fun of it. But at the same time, that's really, that really what happened. Like you mentioned there, after that many years of marriage, that's a deeply hurtful moment, I would assume, uh, embarrassing moment for, for all those involved. And so, you know, and it, and it comes to my mind here, uh, Michael, on how you know, being a head coach in the NFL I think is so different now than it has been in the past. I think an Urban Meyer type, my way or the highway, uh, that was Bill Parcells, and that was a lot of other people. I think that for many years has worked in football, and, and it's not like it's just a college thing because I was just looking up, you know, Matt Rule, Carolina Panthers, came from Baylor, has had a ton right. of success this year already, and I think has the respect of that, of that locker room. Um, winning helps, of course. But I think there's this new mentality. Like, you look at my Detroit Lions and Dan Campbell. Like, not many people think he's the most genius X's and O's guy. He says a lot of crazy stuff. But is he a leader of men in that, in that locker room? That's going to be ultimately the only thing that matters. His coordinators are going to handle. Anthony Lynn's going to handle the offense. He's got his defensive coordinator. 
Do you have the respect of the men in that locker room? I think of yeah, all the traits question. when yeah. we talk about these coaches, oh, he's a really good X's and O's guy. Maybe it just boils down to can you get people to play for you? And do they like you? And do they want to stay with you? And, and Urban Meyer hasn't had that quality at, um, in the NFL so far. And I, I almost think it's like all the successful NFL coaches. Now, Bill Belichick, I can't see him as a guy that many people are saying, oh, I'm looking forward to, to playing for. Um, but you have a lot of people that go back and stay there and talk about the Patriot, yeah. Patriot way. And, some, and sometimes, you know, you get that credibility. If you're going to be one of those guys, if you're going to be one of those tough coaches, hey, it's my way or the highway, you have to come with some type of pro credibility. I'm not saying you have to be a – you have to come in as having previous head coaching experience, but yeah. maybe as a coordinator. You were the, the genius coordinator on defense or offense and the team won the Super Bowl, or, you know, you've got – players, great players who vouch for you. You know, you coach Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, and those guys say, yes, that's the, ne- that's the next guy. That's credibility. Or it's just the rings. You come in with three or four rings yeah. in the pros, and these, these players feel like, he can make me better. I don't necessarily like or agree with every method he uses, but it works. With Urban Meyer, there's all, already a little skepticism mm-hmm. because, hey, you're you're a lifelong college guy. Yeah. Does this thing work in the pros? How are you, are you going to treat us like grown-ups? And so far, he hasn't. But, you know, maybe, Ahmed, maybe I got it all wrong and that he has been humbled by the missteps that he's already made less than a year on the job in Jacksonville. He's already had some pretty big missteps and some controversies. Maybe this humbles him to the point where he says, it's not about me, it's about these, it's about these players. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. But look... Hey, you're still here. We got a lot more to talk about, bro. Uh, we got a guest. We got a company coming up. We love company. Here, our brother from another. We got so company. We company. Oh, good. We got company. Good. good. Yeah. I'm in a small booth so you, right here. I don't have room for anyone else, Michael. So, hopefully, they're not why here. Do you, why do they have you in a small booth? Great question. That's a really good question. No windows. Small booth. Do you hot? Do you? Do you feel like, I'm just going to do a quick survey here. You can answer honestly. Do you feel like you're treated with uh, love and respect in the workplace? or Every other day, yes. I mean, windowless? Today, <laughs> it feels like they just shoved me in a corner, put me on TV. Windowless rooms. Windowless. Not good for your mental, and it really messed you up. crack a door here. It's getting all stuffy in here. We'll survive. We'll survive. There are people doing harder work out there. That's true. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, listen, we've had a lot of conversation about those who are pro-vax and anti-vax, if we can use those terms. And our next guest says, hey, listen, people who are saying this is a personal choice, respect my privacy, uh, this is not something I want to talk about, it's just my decision. No, 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 says Chris Herring. Vaccine isn't really a personal choice for NBA players. 
And we, got, we thought that was a provocative headline. Why not bring on the author of that piece and an author of something else? We'll talk about that in a second. But Chris Herring, welcome to the show, brother. And, and I, I, I'm hopeful you can follow up on that. Just tell us what went into that piece and the, the response that you've gotten to it so far. Well, thanks, guys, for having me. Um, I was going to write, you know, the same standard what to look for this coming season preview sort of story. And I was like, it's not, we have those stories that we can do every year um, and that we will do every year. It just kind of feels like the conversation is trending in a different direction. It's more important um, for where we're at in this country right now. And so I figured I would write about that. I've had that opinion for a while. Um, and it's a little bit annoying that it, I felt like it needed to be said or needed to be written, given that we were looking at 90% versus 10%, 95 versus 5% as far as, the number of people that are unvaccinated, but that obviously is getting a lot more attention than, uh, you know, even though it's a very small minority of people that aren't vaccinated, but you started to hear more and more of this refrain of, oh, it's a personal choice or please respect my privacy. Um, Draymond, who I, you know, have a decent amount of respect for saying that, I just don't know why they're pushing it so hard. And just the the ignorance that that kind of reeks of, I think a lot of these guys are very, very smart, but I've yet to really hear someone say in a really, really smart way what sort of research they're finding that suggests that they shouldn't be getting vaccinated and how on any level a public health issue becomes a personal matter that doesn't have the ability to impact other people. And so I, you know, I tried to put together a story that is respectful of Kyrie and the things that he's done that do not make him a cartoon character, I think, the way a lot of people would like to make him out to be. He said some stupid things in the past. He's owned a lot of the stupid stuff he said in the past. And I thought one of the most interesting ones was the flat earth controversy where he essentially said, I heard from a lot of science teachers around this country that told me that I was hurting them. And so even if that is what I think, or if I have a reason for thinking that I have a big enough platform where I have to be more careful with what I'm saying. And so there's just a dissonance here that, uh, that I think exists. And, you know, Kyrie has been right about, certain things. He made the trip back to Boston right before he did that. He said, I hope that there's not belligerence and racism. And then he had a bottle thrown at him. He was one of the foremost pre- people saying that he didn't necessarily think it was a good idea to go back to the bubble because would the league really be able to solve some of the problems and hold people's attention the same way once they went back to playing? And then you had George Hill come out after Jacob Blake was shot. And he basically said, we never should have come out here. So it's not to say he's always right. It's not to say that he was even right. really right on that. But it's to say that, you know, even if you think he's mostly wrong, that a a broken clock can be right twice a day. Um, I just think he's really wrong on this one. Obviously, it is his personal choice, but it's his personal choice within a public health issue, which has the ability to impact other people. He has ties to the Native American community, which he's donated to, that have been hit by this maybe harder than any other demographic group. So it's uh, I felt like that was why it was worth writing about. But I also thought seeing it through a 360 view and the way that he's talked about some of these issues before was really important. Yeah, and, and, and Chris, it's, that's really interesting because these are, you know, prideful men who have, you know, based their career on being strong-headed. Draymond is the one that comes to mind first and foremost. And so you can see why sometimes they feel like they're backed into a corner and everyone is against them. They're like, that's been my whole life. You know, this is, this is how I've gotten to the point I am. It's like people have been against me, and they, they almost feel like, their pride will be hurt now if they come out. I hope this isn't true, 
but come out and, and get the vaccine. So how do we get to that, that next line? You know, because there's talk of Kyrie not being able to play in certain states, not practice in his home state in New York. So if they're really digging in and Kyrie's going to dig in on this is- issue, if there are some other players out in California who are going to dig in, like how do we resolve it? Where, where do we end up a month or two from now? Well, I mean, I, I was just thinking this with a friend, thinking this out loud with a friend. You have every right not to do it for now. You know, it'll be interesting to see a year from now. We have vaccinations in this country that are required at a very young age to be able to go to school. But I, I think maybe if you want to call it a luxury that you can technically have the job and just not get paid for it, um, Kyrie has that right. You know, it would it would certainly throw off a lot of people. Uh probably on his team that feel like they have a good chance to win the championship that, you know, the Nets are going to be one of the favorites to win the championship. It would be a heck of a thing to kind of opt out of, but he has a right. And that's different than some industries to not participate. If he doesn't want to, Uh, the airline industry is doing that. Federal employees don't have that right. Uh, You know, they're being fired if they don't take the shot. Um, That's true of hospital employees. It's true of people at ESPN. It's true of where I work at a school, where I, I teach at Northwestern on the side. So if, if he doesn't want to, he could actually keep his job. He just won't get paid for it. So he has that right. Um, that's where we're headed here is, you know, we saw Andrew Wiggins did get the vaccine. And he essentially said there was too much money to be lost, I think is what it came down to. Kyrie yeah. will have that choice to make if he doesn't want to do that. But it, it would be a hard sell, I think. To And even Durant sounded kind of confused about it. He was like, you know, I just keep holding out hope that, will do it essentially is what it sounded like because otherwise you're losing a guy for half the season on a team that has a very, very good chance of winning a championship if he plays, which would mean he would get back soon. Well, well, you just, you you started to say it. And I want to ask you two things. One, are the Nets good enough to win a championship without Kyrie? Are they uh, just all together? Are the Nets good enough to win a championship with Kyrie as a part-time player and if they could get through the Eastern Conference and hope that the Warriors don't make the NBA Finals then you have them for the NBA Finals home uh, home and on the road so are they good enough for these scenarios no Kyrie part-time Kyrie I know it's too serious an issue to laugh about but the idea that he would have to sit out an entire no no it's not no you gotta bring some levity to it come on you gotta bring some levity to it you see me laughing about it you see me laughing about it so that was funny um, I, I would say no to whether they're good enough to win without him. Um, but at the same time, this was a team that didn't really have him last year anyway uh, for a long chunk of time and didn't have KD for a long chunk of time and didn't have Harden for a long chunk of time and still looked like the best team in the East when they were anywhere near full strength. And they were really never at full strength. I think, what, the three of them played like nine regular season games together. Um and then, obviously, we saw them play against the team that won the title in Milwaukee. They probably should have won that series and would have probably won that series if it weren't for Kyrie twisting his ankle on Giannis's foot. And Harden was playing on one leg, and they still almost won the series. So, Oh, boy. I, I, oh I boy. think they got deeper. Oh, I think goodness. they got deeper. Oh, man. Come on. Come on. Don't you? And, 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 you know, only thing you didn't mention, Chris, only thing you didn't mention is Kevin Durant shoe size. That's the other one. Like you had, you had it. You had Harden on one leg. You had Kyrie getting hurt, and you missed the trifecta. Most people say those two things. And then, hey, if Kevin Durant had a smaller shoe size, yeah. then they win. Yep. I don't want to hear it. All, all, anyway, all I'm saying, all I'm saying, is that I, 
I don't think you can count them out as easily as you normally we anybody else we would say absolutely they have no chance I, th I think the last time we looked at a situation like this and said maybe they can still win is Golden State when Durant went down and they had a team and a lineup of guys with Draymond and Clay and Steph that they'd still gone something like 39 and two over however many games they'd won with those three in the lineup and nobody else so I think this is that sort of lineup where there's a whole lot of firepower. I think they're built with a little bit more depth than they had last year. They had Patty Mills and a couple of the other guys they have now. I think people might have taken them over Milwaukee anyway, but I, I just kind of feel like him being available sometimes, but not all the times, is still hurtful to them. I think they actually might even be better having – if they were to trade him, which I don't think they will for right now, I feel like having the stability and just knowing what you're doing. I think Philly's the same way with Simmons. Knowing what you're doing would be helpful as opposed to just having this kind of platoon, sometimes not all the time, maybe situation that just seems untenable to me. I mean, this is why culturally the NBA is, it seems like it is always so popular. There are really interesting characters every year, it seems like, in the NBA. And they happen to be all grouped on that team, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. But there are characters all throughout the sport. But that hasn't just, you know, been the case over the last five, ten years. This goes back into the 1990s with the New York Knicks with some very strong personalities back then. And, Chris, from what I understand is you have chronicled that team, that era of New York Knicks basketball in, in a new book. If you could just tell us a little bit about, about that experience. Ooh, a lengthy one. I know Michael knows all about this. Uh, it's a it's it's a lot to to you know interview a couple hundred people. Uh, for me, I'm 34, so I was you know I was five when Pat Riley got hired to the Knicks, and and so um, taking on a project like this was was certainly daunting. But I feel like it hopefully will pay off. Uh, you know, I I feel like I'm under stuff that nobody's ever been told or that's never been out there about key moments, about how Pat Riley left the team in the first place, um, about these guys' personalities and their lives. I, I spent months just trying to talk to people around Anthony Mason, figuring that he's not there to tell his own story um, and wanting to make sure that I really got that right and, and really got to the essence of who he was. Um, all I can say is there's some stuff in there that I, I, I the, my biggest fear all the time is writing something that people are like, I know this already particularly for a book. You never want to go in and just rehash what people already know. So I spent a lot of time just trying to bring a newness to everything and trying to bring out stuff that people have never heard that some of these folks have never told. And by talking to as many people as I did, talking to folks that have never spoken to reporters before about what they know and about what they saw and their friends that they knew, certainly Anthony Mason's people, which one story after another with that guy is just kind of unbelievable, uh, to, to put it bluntly. Um, but it's just real a lot of fun, and uh, I'm hopeful that it'll teach people some stuff. But also, it's you know it's kind of a prehistoric era. It's like a dinosaur era now compared to what we're looking at now. The way fouls are called, and you know the the title of the subtitle of the book is the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. They were they were pretty flagrant. They were the reason that the league changed in a lot of ways. Obviously, the Pistons were Definitely. the team of the era before, but the, I think Pat Riley came in and basically said, "Hmm, I like what the Pistons did there." He figured it would give the Knicks a chance. Um, with the lack of talent they had relative to the Bulls, just beat the hell out of these teams, and, and maybe that, that makes the difference. And, uh, and, and basically just take a younger group than what the Pistons had when they got too old and do the same thing that they were doing. And they almost won a title with it. They made it to two finals during that era. They made the playoffs every year during that era. And they've obviously gotten away from that a little bit uh, <laughs> since then. But um, I, I thought it was a story worth telling because they really did change the league in a lot of ways with a lot of colorful personalities. And I think 
you wouldn't have the wide open NBA you have today without a team like that that played that way. Yeah, you know what, Chris, is a good point. And I, I think that team really showed uh, that, that was like step two in the Riley journey of the, of the three-point Riley journey, showed the range of him. I mean, you think about the kind of coach he was with the Lakers, then the coach he was with the Knicks, then the coach he was with the Heat when he kind of uh, relieved Stan Van Gundy and, and got them to their championship in 2006. I mean, just so many different sides of Pat Riley. Let me ask you this, though. Uh, last thing about the book. Do they think, based on your reporting, do they think they didn't win a championship based on something that they did wrong, a la John Starks shooting and bricking and bricking and bricking and bricking in Game 7 against the, the Rockets, or do they think that or they have a more conspiratorial bent that, hey, you know, the league was not going to let Michael Jordan lose to the Knicks. So what, what's more, what's a stronger feeling? Hey, it's something that we did or something that was done to us, to, a la the league didn't like us. So I'll give you two parts here. One, and, and this, I guess it'll be a little bit of a tease for the book. I feel like the book has a really definitive answer on that game seven. Uh, you talk to enough players you will find that they feel like Pat Riley really got it wrong with game seven and leaving John Starks in and that maybe there was a reason that he didn't pull John Starks out that really hasn't been out there before. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. That's, hey, man, you got, the, you got the marketing thing down already, Chris. That, I'm this ordering is, oh, it right now. It I'm ordering it right now. I've had practice. <laughs> I've had to practice. Uh, the other thing that I'll say, though, you talked to Doc Rivers, and I know, um, again, for your book, I know you had to do that plenty um, Doc still feels really strongly. I mean, Doc wrote a book of his own, I think, around that time. He wrote a book right after the Charles Smith sequence. That same summer, I think, he wrote a book. And he described that sequence as basically feeling like a friend of yours is completely healthy, just dying out of the blue, that, how much pain he felt from that. And so you have a lot of guys that will tell you that they had a chance during that year, they felt like, to win the whole thing. Um, they obviously had a chance in Game 7 in 94, um, but what some of them will say is that the league did implement what they felt like were anti-Nick rules, not that, that kept them from winning a championship necessarily, but that the league did start implementing rules that were very clearly aimed at uh, basically rooting out what the Knicks were doing to make it so that they and other teams like them could not just beat teams that were more talented like the Bulls by just simply being more physical. So hand-checking, uh, which Derek Harper, everybody keeps telling me Derek Harper was like, the king of hand-checking, um, the idea of flagrant foul points coming into play because of Charles Oakley, the Knicks, Charles Oakley having more than twice as many flagrants as, as anybody else in the league one year, the Knicks having way more flagrants than anybody else in the league. So that was one thing. The illegal defense, which the Knicks were excelling at and just doing it constantly until they really made it illegal. Um, moving the three-point <laughs> line in so that their guys could not just hang out in the paint. There were so many things like that. And so – Doc and a lot of other guys said that they were putting rules in place clearly and the fighting rules, which the Knicks got in massive fights, Derek Harper and oh, Jojo yeah. English, the, the Kevin Johnson, uh, Greg Anthony fight where he came off the bench in the ugly T-shirt and sucker punched him. And not to mention that the, the fight with the Heat once Riley went there. So there were a lot of rules that were put in place that did hurt the Knicks. I don't know if anybody would say other than that one fight with the Heat where they lost the 3-1 lead in the Heat series. Um, because of getting every one of their star guys suspended for coming off the bench. Um, I don't think anybody else would argue that it kept them from winning a title. But that one year, there was a case to be made that they would have at least been really competitive with the Bulls. They've been good against them all year in 97, but then got all their guys suspended for coming off the bench. 
because the league had implemented that rule after the Knicks had come off the bench years ago in previous fights. So um, I, I don't think anybody would argue directly, though, that the league held them out of anything. Man, Chris, this is fascinating. Uh, good luck with the book. Congratulations on finishing the book. We know, as you just said, it's, that, it's a tough exercise. It becomes a labor of love, and it won't let you go. You know, you wake up thinking about it. You walk around thinking about the narrative and talking Ooh. to yourself. I know, I know. So congratulations to you. And thank you, brother, for coming on with us today. I look forward to seeing you again on the show. I would love that, guys. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, you guys take care. Well done, Chris. Good tease, All too. Right. Great tease. <laughs> thank you. Oh, yeah, that's good stuff. Hey, he- Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Work that tease out. I don't want to, to dwell too much on the physical things, the ailments, things that are happening, because it sounds like an excuse, and I'm not going to make that. Um, I need to be better. I need to fight through and figure out how to make better decisions, how to make better throws, how to, um, you know, be a better football player. Uh, and that's why I just said I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not giving up on this season. No one in this building is. Uh, it's still early, and there's still a lot of fight left in us. Oh, we haven't talked much about the Pittsburgh Steelers this season. Uh, thought they might be more competitive than this. And uh, we thought that their quarterback would look a little better than he's looked so far. That's Ben Roethlisberger talking about some of the struggles that he's had and the team has had this year. Who better to hang out with, kick it with, our brother. <laughs> Yet another brother pops in. Ahmed, say hello to Jim Trotter. I don't know if you know Jim Trotter, but that's a man to Jim. know. That is the man to know. Oh who taught Kamala Harris everything she knows while they were at Howard <laughs> University uh, together. What's up, Trotter? I, I don't even know how to respond to that, man. You know? I, that's all right. It's, it's just truth. So you don't, even have to, you don't even have to respond to it. You don't have to brag. But let me ask she you seriously, uh, Trotter. She was my classmate, though. I know. I know she was. But well, we how never do you met. feel about... You never met. Not we that you remember. Right. She Not remembers. that I remember. But Damn, you, you got a good memory. You got a good memory. <laughs> How do you feel about what uh, Ben Roethlisberger was saying there? At, particularly when he talked about he's not going to quit, he's not going to give up on the season. It looks like the Steelers, eh, they may have to punt on this season, but how do you feel about Roethlisberger and the Steelers overall? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's something that he has to say at this point. Um, you never want your starting quarterback to come out and say, I'm quitting on the team or I'm quitting on the season. But let me go in this direction uh, with you, Michael. The Steelers are doing that delicate dance right now where you have a franchise quarterback, future Hall of Famer, who's at the end. And his play doesn't measure up <clears throat> to what we've come to expect. And so you want to be respectful of that player. Um, because there's a, you know, what people, what I was always taught growing up, it's not just what you do, but how you do it. So the Steelers know they're at the end with Ben, and this is going to likely, in all probability, be his final season in Pittsburgh and the NFL. And they want this to end in a positive way, meaning 
the two sides having a good relationship. Me having covered the Chargers for so many years, I saw so many star players who their relationship with the franchise didn't end well. And those feelings carried over for a number of years. Some have never, some of those relationships have never been repaired. My point about Ben, I had someone ask me, should they move on from Ben in terms of should they bench him? And my point was, who are you going to replace him with? You know, we've seen the Mason Rudolph um, dance already. There's nothing pretty about that. And Dwayne Haskins isn't ready at this point, particularly behind an offensive line that's struggling to protect Ben. So from my standpoint, you just got to ride this out as long as you can until Ben just shows you physically he can't get it done. And we do know he's nursing some things before you go ahead and make that change. Yeah, Jim, this one's so interesting to me because it's almost like how are you supposed to do it, right? Because yeah. we've seen the, the Green Bay Packers and how they've kind of approached it and how that's blown up in their face, trying to lay the groundwork, be a year too early or two years too early than a year too late. Um, and so that hasn't totally worked out for them and their team. So I wonder if the Steelers could go back a couple years from now. You say they don't have the answer there right now. I wonder if they could have gone back a couple years from now and started to lay the groundwork uh, behind Big Ben, but I don't know if that would have worked either. Like, what ha, is this an inevitable situation for them that they would have to meet at some point? Well, when we say lay, lay the groundwork, we, um, we would have to go back and look and see who might have been available at that point where they were drafting or if they had chose to make some sort of move to put a backup behind Ben. And one thing I know about Ben, and you guys know this as well, he can be very temperamental. So if they were to put a young quarterback behind him a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, I'm not so sure Ben would have reacted in the right way, um, especially if it's a player that we all would agree at that time, whether we were right or wrong, we wouldn't know. But we would believe that he would be that heir apparent to Ben. So, um, yeah, you always want to look to the future and have a plan. You know, Bill Walsh was one of those people who used to say, it's better to get rid of a player a year early than a year late. Bill Belichick subscribes to that same theory. Um, the Pittsburgh Steelers do it a little differently. Uh, their organization, they have a certain way they go about their business, and at least as it relates to Ben, um, knowing that he is one day going to be in Canton, I have a feeling that, that they're going to do everything they can to make sure that this ends on a positive note for him in terms of the relationship. You know, Jim, you talked about uh, uh, a year early, year late, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick. I'm not sure what Belichick did today with Stephon Gilmore. <laughs> was it a year early? No. Was it a year late? No. Uh, was it great compensation, six-round pick for Stephon Gilmore? No, it wasn't. So just give us some insight there. We know uh, Belichick is not going to talk about it. He'll just give you some cliches and, and snort at you. Whoa, but whoa, what whoa, happened? Whoa. What happened was... Wait, hang on a minute. Hey. You coming out to the West Coast to ask me about Bill Belichick. There's no greater authority on Bill respect Belichick That's, This is the respect you. I got for you. Than this you. Respect, I, I'm just... I know that, no. but, but, so but thank you. I thank was you. actually coming. No, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I was actually coming to you to ask you, Michael. You know this man better than anyone. Yes. Tell me what's going on here. You know what happened? In my opinion, and I just want, I want to get your take on what you've been hearing around league circles, but this is what I think happened. I think the Patriots, this is very rare, they got ragdolled in a negotiation. They, they felt like they had the hammer. I thought they had the hammer, too, honestly. I'm about, I'll be real. I've been saying it all, all uh, offseason. Man, Stephon Gilmore, 
you got played by your agent in this negotiation because he tried to get a new contract while he was hurt. He was hurt for a while and then when he got well, he didn't want to show his services because he wanted the contract. So I'm saying, hey man, you're on the other side of 30. You want a new contract, yet you won't show the Patriots or other teams that you're healthy enough to get the contract after missing five games last year. What do you think is going to happen? You're not going to get the money that you're looking for. So I felt like the Patriots really had him in a no-win situation, but then they turn out, they cut him, and then they wind up trading him to the Panthers. Ultimately, he gets out of there. Maybe he does get the contract that he's looking for, but I feel like the Patriots thought they had a lot more leverage than ultimately they had. There's no way they wanted to trade him for a six-round pick. A guy who was Defensive Player of the Year two years ago goes for less compensation than they got for Sony Michelle. I think they botched the negotiation, Trotter. What do you think? Wow. I, I think you laid it out well. Um, I'll say this first, though, about Gilmore. I know that there were at least a couple of teams that I had talked to prior to the start of the season that were closely, closely monitoring that situation and had hopes of bringing him into their place. So when he did get traded during training camp, I thought, He's going to be there. For, I thought he's going to be in New England for the year. I'm not sure, Michael, you would know this better than me again. I'm not going to sit here and lie to your viewers and act like I'm in tight with the Patriots. I'm out on the West Coast. I don't spend much time dealing with the Patriots. But I wonder how much the fact that, that there's – how much has their slow start contributed to the move that they made as well? If they were in a position to truly challenge for the AFC East title, would they have made this move? Mm. I'm not so certain that they would have. So I think that plays in. And why should we pay a guy who's not on the field and we're not in contention right now? So move on. Yeah, I think there's. it's a really weird – I mean, it's a strange transition couple of years for, for New England moving on from Tom Brady. You saw the big splashes they made in free agency, and now you're moving on with a, a new rookie quarterback. And, Jim, that's one of the big storylines for me this year in the NFL. It's a fascinating rookie quarterback class, just watching – each week, these players either progress, take a step back, you know, not all of them, you know, many of them in good situations at all with talent around them. Um, but it was interesting to me, the guy that did replace Brady over there in, in New England, during the whole draft process, and you're out on the West Coast, and you saw this firsthand, I was out there for six years, when the rumors came out that it could be Mac Jones is the guy that Kyle Shanahan wanted to trade up and acquire with that number three pick, you saw heads exploding all across the West Coast. Like, why would you trade up? For Mac Jones, you could sit at whatever and get Mac Jones, which in in retrospect, I mean, that's what the Patriots did. And I did think, Jim, and I wonder your take on this, throughout the whole draft process, of course we see the the great ability that running quarterbacks have um, and what they can bring to a team if they can run and pass. But I almost wondered, I almost felt like I was trying to stick up for for Mac Jones because I feel like what Mm -hmm. we saw on Sunday night was him making accuracy sexy again you know it's like he's a little pudgy you know he doesn't have the physique of the other quarterbacks out there but some of the things that he does with his quick decision quick release accuracy I feel like back you know 20 years ago that was in style that was Joe Montana that's what a quarterback needs and I almost feel like the pendulum swung a little bit too far in our draft analysis process but Hmm. your thoughts on on kind of this rookie class and, and Mac Jones's place in that Well, the first thing I thought about this rookie class as it relates to quarterbacks was I'm fascinated how every year we act as if this is going to be the greatest rookie class ever. 
And and we heard people report, at least I did, I heard people reporting that this quarterback class is the greatest ever. And I'm thinking, did we really forget about 83 already? I mean, <laughs> where we had an Elway, a Marino, a Kelly, you know, go down the list. And I don't know if, it, if it's because now we just expect young players to come in and play well right away. All I know is that with young quarterbacks in particular, many times if they don't play well right away, we say they're a bust. And why do we say that? We put it on the player and ignore the fact of the circumstances they were put into, the coaches that they are surrounded by. For instance, even in Chicago right now where you have a Matt Nagy who was doing nothing to accentuate the talents of, of Justin Fields, and the minute they switch play callers and you have someone who now designs plays and concepts and schemes – to fit Justin Fields' abilities, we see him go out and play well last week. So my feeling on this quarterback class was this. San Francisco, here's what I know. Everyone's head exploded when, the, when, when Chris Sims came out and said, Mac Jones, he expected to be the guy. I get that. Um, but all along how the 49ers felt was, we like Mac Jones, but we believe he is the floor. Now let's see what the ceiling is. And when they went out and did their due diligence, they felt that Trey Lance had more upside than Mac Jones because in part of not only his ability to take care of the football, his arm talent, his accuracy, but also the fact of his mobility. Kyle Shanahan has seen in recent years how opponents that he has played, whether it is Russell Wilson whether it is Kyler Murray, two quarterbacks in the division, that when things break down or plays are extended, those quarterbacks are hell for him and his defense to deal with because of their ability to extend plays uh, with their legs and make it, you know, so that um, San Francisco's defense has a harder time. And that's what the deal was here. So I'll never forget, after that pick was made, and I talked to a couple of sources in the 49ers organization. They told me that it was Monday morning before the draft when Kyle Shanahan walked into to John Lynch's office and he said to John, are you ready to take Trey? And John said, and, and I'll, I'll clean it up for your viewers. John said, don't mess with me. Are you serious? Huh. And Kyle said, yes. And so on Monday, they knew. The thing was... John and Kyle had never said, this is what we're going to do during the process. They wanted each of them to evaluate independently. They talked about the abilities of these different quarterbacks. And they knew how each one kind of felt, but they never said, this is what I want to do. It wasn't until that Monday morning before the draft when Kyle walked in and said to John, are you ready to do this, that it was in, in, in cement what they were going to do. And, and don't forget this. If they had been able to go out and get Aaron Rodgers or if they had been able to get Deshaun Watson before all of these things happened in Houston and if he were on the market, I do believe they would have made given up those picks to go get one of those two veteran quarterbacks as well. Hey, Jim Chandler, I'll, I'll leave you with this on the way out, man. Uh, I know I still struggle when I see the Chargers and I see the uniforms. I still think San Diego Chargers. And I know people in San Diego – must have been looking to Los Angeles and be like, hmm. And they talk about our stadium. They got a dome stadium, and they got a delay. A wait, rain wait. delay no, no, in no, a no. dome stadium. It, no, bro, come on. Let's get it right now. It was not a rain delay. The it was NFL, lightning. as it was you lightning. know, 
I know you're trying to put down my boys out here. The NFL <laughs> has a rule that if lightning is within a certain distance of a venue, then they have to postpone whatever is happening. And so lightning was going off. I mean, look, I live in San Diego. I was up in L.A. for the game. I haven't seen lightning like that in Southern California in some time. And it was close enough to the venue that they said, we got to postpone the start of the game, which they did. And by the time that, you know, it moved on, they started the game. So for all the folks out there, it was not a rain delay. And it is not, and they should also know, it is not a dome stadium. It is an outdoor stadium with a canopy over the top, translucent canopy over the top. Yeah. Michael's just putting so people it, at risk. Listen, he just wants to put people at risk. Dangerous. Dangerous no, thinking. I'm going to say this. In all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, I know it's a great stadium, but that was not that they wanted it to uh, go this way, Trotter, but that is a great run through. That's a great dress rehearsal. The Super Bowl is there, and I'm sure they learned some things that they didn't know after going through that experience because there was a lot of unknowns in that situation. New stadium, and it was a kind of unscripted, hey, what do we do when things don't go as planned? That's a great, great preview uh, for the Super Bowl, just in case things no, go left. Let me, yeah, let me say this. You're absolutely right because even at the game, I ran into some officials from the Hall of Fame who were there, and I'm like, what are you doing here? And they're like, we got to get ready for a trial run for what's going to happen for the Super Bowl. So you're right. Everything that's happening in SoFi this year is all about preparing in part for the Super Bowl and learning what they can now to mitigate any problems they may have that arise in February. Jim Trotter, man, we always uh, we always come away more entertained, more uh, more intelligent after speaking with you, brother. So thank you for popping in, and we hope we can see you again soon. I appreciate you, fellas. Great job, Jim. All right. Jim Trot. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Does LeBron get ring number five? Yes. The, I hate to be this guy. The, the Lakers, <laughs> be the guy. All right, the Lakers are the clear-cut best team in basketball. Do the Nets stay healthy enough to come out of the East this year? Yes, game? yes. They got humbled by Giannis. And even though they dealt with some injuries, um, because James Harden had a hamstring injury, I'm not going to say because he started the season out of shape it had an effect. But I will say they're going to come in to this season more focused, more disciplined because they just saw the Bucks do it. And because of that, they'll play more than 20 games as a collective. And yes, the Nets win the, the Nets win the East, the Lakers win the West, the Lakers win it all in six. Ooh, I'm telling you, Lace is out. Always, uh, I always like checking in with Ash and Nicole Moss to see who she's talking to is always an interesting twist. And I got to say, look, this may, be, this may sound strange to hear this from me, Ashley. You know, I want to go shopping with you. 
I want to go shopping with you. That's <laughs> style. On can top we of that, use your credit card style. instead of mine? Okay, well, listen, we can, we can figure out somebody else's credit card. We'll go shopping. Okay. Peacock. Peacock will buy it, you know, expense report. Expense That's report, right. Peacock. We'll take that. We'll do it on the Peacock thing. So, listen, I, uh, Ashley Nicole Moss, always good to see you, sister. Look, you, you had this interview with, with Jalen Rose, and he said something that goes against what most NBA general managers believe. We showed a poll yesterday, NBA general, general managers, 30 of them, think that Brooklyn, like, like 71% of them, I think that's the number, think that Brooklyn is a clear-cut favorite, then the Lakers, and a few of them have Milwaukee. Do you agree with the general managers, Brooklyn, or do you agree with Jalen Rose, the Lakers? You know, it's hard to kind of bet against either. I think it's hard to ever bet against a team that has LeBron James at the helm, right? Especially when he's healthy. Not to mention, that's a starting five of all Hall of Famers. Now, yes, their age is a concern. The West is extremely competitive. So your health is a big chunk of the reason that you'll be at the end of that finish line, which is the championship, obviously. And as we saw last season, your health can make or break your season and ultimately give someone else the higher up. Look at what happened with the Bucks and the Suns coming out of their respective conferences. A lot of people say that's because both conferences were just completely decimated by injuries. On the other side of that, yes, you want to say, look, the Nets have all the odds in their favor. They're younger, they're healthier, but Kyrie may not be in the equation. That's going to go ahead and cause some conflict. James Harden is coming off a hamstring situation. Now, obviously, he's had a whole season to rehab, get his body back together. But you still you have concerns when someone's had an injury that was nagging like that. In the back of your mind, you always wonder, especially if Kyrie is out of the picture, that means you need more from Kevin Durant and James Harden. What is that going to mean for their longevity and for their health? If I had to pick, though, just the way that things look right now and also being a Knicks fan, I, I, if any team comes out of the East, it can't be Brooklyn. But I'm just, I'm going to go with the Lakers at this moment in time for the simple fact that they are a more complete team with less distractions outside of the game of basketball. And I think ultimately that's going to give them an edge against Brooklyn to counterfact the, the part of being an older team with more miles on them. Clear bias detected. Clear bias has been detected. <laughs> it's been clear, noted. Clear bias stated. 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 You're right. Stated uh, on the record. Um, Ashley, it, it, every year it seems like there's a handful of teams that can win it. You know, maybe only three or four. Um, you mentioned, you know, the Nets, the Lakers, the Bucks. Is there another team out there that maybe have some younger stars, an up-and-coming team that could come out and shock us, you know, a la Toronto? Not that they were a total shock, but a couple of years ago, I don't think a lot of people were picking them to win the title. So what would be one, one or two teams that could jump up and make a big leap this year? Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I know there's a lot of drama going on in Philly right now, but if they're able to kind of salvage that relationship with Ben Simmons, I wouldn't count the 76ers out. Obviously, you know, it seems like that relationship's just kind of broken and there's no fixing it. 
There have been reports, you know, that he's considering holding out because that's a whole lot of cash that he'd be missing out on. So if that's the case and they're somehow able to work things out to where he does see at least some of the season or most of the season or just stay with the team in general, I think you can't count them out. That's a really talented team. I think they're a well-coached team. Obviously, the Knicks aren't winning a championship, but they're a team that looked fantastic in last night's preseason game. They've gotten so much better. Um, The Hawks, you know, my concern with them is that they really haven't made much improvements. I know they signed a former net, but for the most part, that's pretty much the same team. The Wizards, obviously, Bradley Beal, you can never count him out. Just not enough there. But I will say Miami is a team that you also have to look out for. I think this is going to be a different Heat team than we saw last season. I think it's going to show us more of that reminiscence of that team that just blew up in the bubble. I think that's a team that we're going to see this season. The East is a lot more more open than it used to be back in the day. This is a completely different conference and there are a lot more teams that are getting better and they're going to be more competitive this season for sure. You know what, Ashley, if my memory serves, if my memory is accurate, uh, it was you and it was me trying to tell the world (laughs) in the first round last year, I know you remember, this is a highlight for both of us, hey, the Lakers are not going to beat the Phoenix Suns. They're not going to beat them. The Suns win that series, and everybody's like, oh, wow, the Suns beat the Lakers. And I thought at the time, they're not done yet. They go all the way through the NBA Finals. They lose in six to Milwaukee. We know that. But you've mentioned a bunch of teams that could surprise. These NBA general managers have their poll of the teams to look out for. Nobody's really mentioning the Phoenix Suns this year. I know Chris Paul is a year older, but DeAndre Ayton, in theory, is better uh, all the, you know, uh, Cam, uh, Cam Jordan, uh, uh, Cam Johnson is better. Excuse me. Cam Johnson is better. Uh, Devin Booker should be better, or at least in his prime. Why aren't we talking about the Phoenix Suns again? Is it that the Lakers made so many improvements that they're just going to be head and shoulders better than the Suns? I think the issue with the Suns is, and look, I had last season, just like, you know, you mentioned, I didn't think the Lakers were going to repeat. I think people a lot of the times underestimate just how hard it is to two-peat or to repeat just in general. So I didn't, I don't have any doubts in that prediction from last season. Obviously it turned out to be right. Obviously I couldn't predict injuries and things like that. I'm not that psychic. I think the issue with the Suns is they haven't really gotten better. They're pretty much the same team. It's the same situation with the Hawks. Yes, every player makes strides as an individual player and you bring that to a team, but still collectively as a team, you still need to put different pieces into the puzzle to make you a better competitor, a better challenger to kind of throw teams who played you last season off their game a little bit because now they don't have film in these new rotations that you're running or these new schemes that you have cooked up. And I think the Suns, they're a great team. I definitely don't think you can count them out in general. They're definitely going to be in the playoffs. I would predict they would go even pretty far in the playoffs. But is this a championship team, especially with the Lakers being at full health? Hopefully the Clippers are at full health. You have that experience there. That's a very complete, deep team. Hopefully they've worked out their chemistry issues in the offseason. I don't think that they have enough manpower to compete with those guys at their full strength. That's not to say that they can't compete. It's just not going to be a championship-level competition for sure. You know, Ashley, uh, we, we showed the clip from Laces Out, Laces Out off the top. And I just wanted to ask you about this. I know before you started the show, you said, hey, I got something uh, coming up. It's this cool concept. 
That was before it actually started. Now yeah. that you started, I'm always checking you out uh, on Instagram, see all the stuff, the stuff that you're doing, doing some really interesting things. Tell us if, if the show, how the show was conceived and how it's different than, than what you thought it would be. Because it's always like that. Hey, I got this sketch. Yeah. I got this outline. I want the show to be this. Then you start doing it, and it's probably even cooler than you thought. Just, just tell us about that process. Definitely cooler than what we thought, you know, especially in the pandemic environment that we were in and still are in. We're just trying to figure out a way to do content differently than, you know, the normal just talking head, three box, two box that everyone was doing because they had no choice. Right. And I think people also were looking for content that wasn't so heavy. We were dealing with such a heavy climate. We still are between the protests and then the pandemic and the election and everything in between was just so heavy that I wanted to bring back the fun of sports. I think sometimes we forget, you know, we're rotten. We're not rocket scientists. We're not, you know, out there curing cancer. We're not fighting, you know, global warming. We talk about sports. We talk about games and they should be fun. And of course, there are serious topics in that. But for the most part, it should be fun. And I think I wanted to kind of combine, along with my team, the fun of MTV Cribs when you got to go and get that look inside your favorite athlete or singer's personal space and you felt that connection. And also, obviously, it's Sports Illustrated. So bringing the sports environment, where we sit down with people within the sports world, whether it's former athletes, current athletes, um, you know, people, media personalities, getting to know them, getting to know, get their takes on different things going on in sports. And then sneaker culture is huge. I mean, Everybody has tried to get a pair of sneakers on the sneaker app just so, you know, your drawing wasn't selected and your whole Saturday's ruined and you got to pay two times the retail value (laughs) on one of those other apps and things like that. It's the fun. It's the chase. So it was just like a cluster of everything. And it surpassed even my wildest expectations. And I'm looking forward to season two and, and doing it even bigger. I love it. I love the way that you're doing it, too. It's like you, you mentioned it. It's sports has to be fun. We have to have fun while doing it. And I've done that, too. I've told people, I go, hey, I'm not a rocket scientist. And they go, Ahmed, yeah. you don't need to tell us that. We knew that. We, we already knew that. <laughs> Ooh, Maybe you need to tell yourself hurts, that. You got to hang uh, around. Yeah. We got to hang around more encouraging people. Um, exactly. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Build you up. Not to knock you down. down. Yeah, as my mom would say, <laughs> those are not your real friends. Those are not your real friends. You're right. Um, but, hey, before you go here, Ashley, so having fun. You, you have fun if you win, and I understand you're a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, who That's right. are winning so far. <laughs> how optimistic, like, how, like at this point, after what you've seen so far, do you feel like they're going to win the Super Bowl, and will they do it by 50 points? Is that how optimistic you are right now? <laughs> Listen, the Dallas Cowboys, if you ask me every season, we're going to win the Super Bowl. That's now, true. whether or not it happens is a different fan. conversation. Yes. But we're definitely coming out of the NFC East. It's our division to win, and it's our division to lose. <laughs> I think, you know, everybody was very apprehensive, with reason to be so, myself included, about Dak Prescott. That was the X factor. He didn't have a preseason. He was dealing with some shoulder issues. Um, and whenever you have a quarterback that's coming off of a gruesome injury and then misses an entire preseason because of another situation, you're like, oh, man, this is deja vu. How is he going to be able to get his reps in? You know, the first game's going to be a disaster. Dak has proven everybody wrong. He looks fantastic. He is the glue that holds this team together. He is the nucleus. But then also, on the other side of the ball, defense has been the bane of Cowboys fans' existence for as long as I can remember. I don't remember a good defensive team since probably the Tony Romo era. And when I say good, that was being extra generous. So this defense, Dan Quinn, has really just revived this defense and made it a team 
a complete team on both sides of the ball. And I think that's what Dallas has been desperately missing. And I think that this is a team that's going to shock a lot of people. We're definitely going to the Super Bowl. I say it every year. Um, it's going to mm. be a Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl. But even if it happens and it doesn't happen that way, whichever, you know, for whatever reason, the refs screw us like they did a couple years ago. It's a different conversation. Okay, it's a ref. I think that it's is a, that I think this is a team people got to look at. the refs. Dez caught it. Listen, Dez caught that ball. You and I both know that. Okay, that should be the Super Bowl year for no, us. No, I agree. Okay. I agree, yes. Just making sure. I agree with that. That was our hey, Super listen, Bowl the year Cowboys. and we got screwed. <laughs> Hey, here's here's the great thing about the, the Cowboys. Now they are so they're feeling themselves so much, and they just hey hey you know hey Jalen Smith you know he's cut. We we just go mm-hmm. cut a guy who, who was in the Pro Bowl before. Our defense is so good. We got the luxury. We can just move on from him, and and it's not gonna hurt us. Yeah, I mean, listen, when Micah Parsons Parsons came through, he kind of changed the whole realm. And and Jalen, as much as of a great guy that he is, he kind of has gotten lost in the Dan Quinn um, system. And he has kind of been a ghost. And this was a year that he really needed to prove himself. And it's hard to do that when you have the freak of nature that uh, that Micah Parsons is out there being able to be swung from different positions and just just flourishing in every single one. The defense looks great. Sad to see Jalen go, but like you said, it's a luxury to be able to cut people and not miss them. So I'm glad I'm glad we're in that situation and we're not the New York Giants or somebody like that. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> well, listen, let's hope the stupid officials and the stupid league don't do anything to keep the Cowboys from going to the Super Bowl yeah, that's and right. winning, as Ahmed said. I, I, I'm at 50, 50 maybe is a little too conservative. You're right. Maybe a shutout, maybe like 60. Maybe well, they win by 60. You're right, as, as Ashley mentions, now with that defense yeah. that's good for the first time in forever, Dan Quinn yeah. there. And both of, you can use, both of you can use this. You know, I think he's cured the defense. I call him Dan Quinn, medicine man. You know, it's a, it's a former <laughs> show, uh, Dr. Right. Quinn, medicine man. That's All before right. Ashley's time, perhaps. You but, know is and that, maybe mine too. Is that and the maybe first before Dr. Quinn medicine <laughs> woman reference on the show ever? Yeah, and first and last. Okay, you know what? And look at that. It's time. Look at it's time. time. <laughs> we got to go. But Ashley Nicole Moss, and we always enjoy hanging out with you. And I know you're rich, you're famous. Just, just take our phone calls. Take our phone calls. Yeah. Continue to take our phone calls. Remember, remember us, all right? Always. Thanks, guys. All right, we appreciate you. Michael, that's assuming she takes her calls now. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is Dave. He tells jokes for a living. Driving down these country roads is a lot like a meditation. He's deep in thought. Back in the trance. Five specials in as many years. How do you close a body of work that profound? I couldn't imagine the enormity of the pressure. 
And then he looks as if he's about to say something. What could he possibly have left to say? Will you shut the f up, Morgan Freeman? Sorry. I was, I was just... just... It's all right. Ahmed, uh, I don't know. We don't know each other well enough. Getting to know each other still. So I don't know who your comedic inspirations are, who your heroes are, if it if we can if I can use that word yeah. when it comes to comedy. But for a lot of people, that person is Dave Chappelle. Um, and look at the headline. Uh, we'll get to that headline in a second. Punchlines or dares. His new special, The Closer, goes too far, says the writer here. Uh, read this piece, very interesting piece. But Dave Chappelle has a new comedy special on Netflix. It's called The Closer, obviously. And I, I you know, I'm I'm just fascinated by comedians in general. Just the the writing that goes into it, uh, their backstory that informs their comedy, how they continue to push the culture into in, places that. The culture is not ready to go. That's the funny thing about comedians. Mm -hmm. Like more than more than any other profession, comics will say, "Okay, uh, okay, you don't think this is funny? I'm gonna make this funny. You don't laugh about this in public. I'm gonna make you laugh about it." And sometimes it works, and sometimes uh, the public says, "No, we're not doing it. Try it again. We're not doing it." So you know, going back, Ahmed, to the days of Lenny Bruce. So Lenny Bruce was controversial, but if you listen to Lenny Bruce now, you go, well, what's the big deal? Huh. But it was a big deal at the time. And George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, I was talking about this with Gary Carter, one of our producers today, Eddie Murphy, Raw. There's some things that Eddie Murphy said in Raw, I think that was like 87, 88. No way, no how. Now, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you, you say that now, they probably shut you down, probably cancel. Yeah. So that brings us to Dave Chappelle, where he's doing some of that stuff. He's pushing the culture to a point where a lot of people, like this writer, are saying, no, you, we're, even though you're a comedian and we give comedians leeway that we don't give other people in other professions, we don't give comedians the leeway, we give comedians the leeway that we don't give the politicians, we don't give the journalists, yeah. we don't give the lawyers, we don't give the teachers. Or co-host of uh, Brother uh, from Another, stuff that we can't a say. A co-host. Even with all of the leeway we give you, this writer says no. Yeah. So it's really that space of too far, not far enough, and then there's a tension in between, which, which makes yeah. for good comedy and, and good conversation. If you're Dave Chappelle, you have to go to where... A writer's gonna say this, right? If you never even get close to a writer, if, if a writer never says that about you, there's no way you're getting close enough to that that third rail. 
Um, which you can make the argument that there maybe there are more third rails now than there were ten years ago. Maybe things now. Oh, definitely. Are, are you, you can't say you know, and, and comedians have always. If if you tell a comedian, if you tell Dave Chappelle, you just can't joke about this. You can't talk. Oh, but he's going to want to talk about it. He's going to want to joke about it. And the same thing with Richard Pryor and and, and comedians back in the day that. They're going to want to push the boundaries. And I think it's interesting you said comedians can kind of push things forward. Um, but I also think that comedians can push back, too. And they have, a, they have a really good way, and the best ones do this, of removing themselves from the situation, looking at the world as it currently stands, and being like, are we serious? Are we really going to do this? Is this really the best path forward? Um, and I think Dave Chappelle does that as well as anyone. And I think that's the value of, of comedians, because it really does, it can remove you from the situation, look at the world as it stands, laugh at the world, because it is hilarious most of the time, and say, are we sure, you know, I, I'm a big guy on, on groupthink, Michael, and I think that we oftentimes we, all, we get caught up in groupthink, and if enough people say it, it makes sense, you're like, yeah, I think that too. And then you've got to get a Dave Chappelle every once in a while to be like, you all are going down a path that we shouldn't go down. So... I like it. You know, I don't agree with all the stuff that Dave says. I don't think anyone does. Probably he doesn't even agree with everything that comes out of his mouth, but it's so important. And I think, honestly, it's more important now than ever to have voices like Dave Chappelle. I really feel, I really feel like that, Michael. Yeah, I think uh, when you're in, you're in comedy at that level, I think you've got to be, you've got to be mindful of this. You've got to say something. Say something that is, is meaningful or provocative. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're wasting your time. No, I'm not. No, I'm getting close now. I'm getting close. I'm getting close to the stove. I understand that. That flame is right there. I'm getting real close. This is an NBC property. I remember last year, or was it earlier this year? Okay, the months are starting to blur together. Maybe it was earlier this year. Uh, Bill Burr was a guest host on Saturday Night Live. And he, he had a monologue that really was pushing some people. And he talked about race. He's a white man, talks about race. Uh, he was talking about white women in particular. He was talking about COVID. He was talking about anti, essentially anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers. And he did that on Saturday and still on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, people were still talking about the, the hot, the controversial monologue of Bill Burr. I would say job well done. Why? Because there are a lot of times there are comedians on Saturday Night Live or guest hosts on Saturday Night Live, and they're not making an impact. If I'm not talking about you on Monday or Tuesday, then maybe you, you might have missed. You might have missed that platform, which is supposed to make me a little uncomfortable, make me laugh, make me sad, make me think, make me do something. And so I think a comedian has to move you somewhere. Now with Dave Chappelle, and, and I, I guess this is, maybe this is the genius of Dave Chappelle, uh, maybe this says something about us as an audience. He can say things about race, about gender, sexuality, uh, the LGBTQIA community that other people can't say. And what that means, now what does that mean? Will, will we get to the point, or will anybody get to the point where they'll say, nope, he's done? I think that's, that's ultimately when you figure out if you've gone too far, when the public says, no, there are no more comedy specials for you, no more laughs for you, we're done. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think we're at that point, but I haven't seen the closer yet. So <laughs> let me see the closer and I'll get back to you and let you know 
how I feel about it. Yeah, what, what is the term cancel culture that everyone talks about all the time? Is there going to be a point where Dave Chappelle gets canceled? And I feel like for Dave, um, it's almost impossible to do that because to do that, you have to almost reduce someone to this single statement or single thing. And it's really hard to do that for Dave Chappelle, right? Dave Chappelle, we, we've known Dave Chappelle for a long time. We know what he stands for. It's, it's nuanced. It's a lot of things. And so is one statement going to get him canceled where it could? Some guy that we don't know about, man or woman, that we just hear this one statement. It's like, yeah, that's all I know about this person. So I think the, the thing working for Dave Chappelle is that he said a lot of stuff throughout the years. And most of it makes a whole lot of sense for a lot of different people. Now, there are other people that are going to disagree with different parts of what he says. But you know the man that Dave Chappelle is. And I think a lot of people have bought into Dave Chappelle. And so he gets maybe a pass from a bigger segment of people than would another comedian that we just learned about maybe a year ago. And I think that's important. And I think that's why, you know, honestly, Dave is doing this because I feel he, he knows that he has that freedom that maybe other people don't have. That's right. That he can't be silenced if he goes there where other people don't have that opportunity. So I give him a lot of credit for that because, I mean, he's made so much money. He doesn't need to worry about this. Why would he, like, throw himself out there to say something that someone's going to hate him for for the rest of his life? Like, he doesn't need that, but he's doing it because he thinks it's important, well, and I give him a whole lot of credit for that. Well, but I, I think, but I think you, you go into it, like, you can't, and I don't want to compare it to broadcasting yeah. and commentary, but there's a, there's, a, there's a degree, there's a kernel uh, of, of commonality here between broadcasting particularly with commentary and comedy. You can't go in expecting and wanting to be liked. All right, now, there's a balance. You don't want to go in and say, I'm just going to be a troll. I want to be hated. I don't think that works. But you can't be so concerned about, hey, if I say anything, uh, they they may not like me. I guarantee you, they won't like you. Some people just won't like you no matter what you say. You you try to appeal to every every, uh, demographic. You try to appeal to every clique and it's not going to be successful. You cannot be universally liked. I think you have to go in and just say, I'm just going to, I'm going to say what I say. I'm going to say what I see. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. Now, I hear that, you know, maybe you got a little comedy in you. Well, so it, and, it's, uh, yeah. It, maybe. It, maybe. Not maybe really you got that something much. you want to share before we leave. Depending on how funny it is, you can ask my wife on that. It's hit or miss. Um, but I think it is harder to do comedy now because it's almost like the real world is just as funny as the comedy. It's almost crazier than whatever you could make up. I know a lot of people said that about the previous uh, presidential administration that we had in there. But it also rings true with a former Saturday Night Live skit. And I think we have it, Michael. This goes back into the Kevin Nealon, Victoria Jackson years, early 90s, late 80s. Um, It was like my favorite cast. And we all say that because it was when we grew up, whenever you grew up for Saturday Night Live. But they had this one sketch, and I think we have the video. It's, uh, it was uh, Kevin Nealon, Victoria Jackson together here. It was very romantic. Um, there it is. You can't, I don't want to give it away. See, it's like these two people do everything together. You know, they eat together. They go out there, ride bikes. I mean, that looks fun. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Oh, it's like there, you know, okay. intimate. Some okay, intimate we can moments. show that. Where, are we late enough at night I here? I got some candles. Okay, now it's getting a little... Oh, nice. Okay, but hold on. A little bubble bath, a little and champagne. Then, and... Michael, what, what, what they also, here? no, yeah, they share everything together. Oh, they don't on. want to be apart <laughs> for any moment. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> yeah. Du- so, yeah. Dual toilets. Uh, give me some, co- get, 
Give me, give me some context with the dual toilets. What's, what's going on here? So I'm saying that, you know, that was a sketch in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Funny, you know, because, like, that would never happen in real life. That's why it's funny, right? It's just like no one would ever right. design their I, bathroom to have two toilets together. Right, Michael? You're about to say that you right. that. I, would, I, I wouldn't. No, no, okay. I'm not. No. Megan Trainer has done that. We have the sound. Got a new house and we did construction. Uh, nobody knows us, but in our bathroom, there was one toilet. And a lot of times in the middle of the night when we're with the baby, like we, we got to pee at the same time. So I was like, can't we please have two toilets next to each other? So we. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm telling you, it is insanity. That's an exclusive. You guys Wait a minute. <laughs> we got I'm two sorry. toilets sitting Excuse next to each me. other. And we've only pooped together twice. You looked at a contractor, another adult in the face. Yes. And you said. We need a bathroom with two toilets next to each other. And he and that adult and... said, "Okay." He laughed. You know what? Hey, hey. You know what? I'm gonna tell you right now. Deal breaker. Hey, but she said, hey, "Michael, they've only they've only pooped together twice." So I, you know, I, I, my, my headphones came out on that one. My, my, my earpiece came out on. Let me. She's done. I was out. Of, I had. I was out of my seat on She's that. Done. One. He's, he's, he might that retire from the show. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.